Hello and welcome to the Forge Church Catch-Up Podcast. We're delighted that you have chosen to click play on this podcast. Each Sunday, our hope and prayer is to provide practical teaching directed by God that ties into everyday life. We hope today's talk encourages you. The greatest adventure of your life is just one decision away. But when we peek over the edge, it can all seem too much. The alluring safety of what has been. Even as you take the leap, you question your choice. It's easier in the shallows. Safer than the unknown. But something calls us to go further. Something calls us to go beyond. To expand our horizons. It's time to find the cure to our common lives. Time to push out into the deep. Um, just uh, let, well, let's do that, shall we? Let's peek over the edge. Let's dive into the deep and let's see if we can't, over this week and next week, start to try and find a cure for the common life. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Duncan Banks and I'm just a member here at Forge Thurston and I'm very excited about that. So I want to just dive in by asking you one of those really difficult questions that you don't have to answer but I want you to think about it in your head. Have you ever come to the place in your life where you've thought to yourself, there's got to be more to life than this? You ever sat there maybe early in the morning, late at night and you thought, there seems to be a gap. There's a gap between the life I've always dreamed of, the life I thought I would lead and the life I'm currently experiencing. Well, if you've ever thought that, this little series, two weeks, this week and next week, it's for you. Because I want to start answering that question. I want to help you to fill that gap. I want to help you to find a cure for the common life. And it's got something to do with diving into the deep. You see, this whole idea for this series came to me at the start of the summer. I went to, do they call it Ipswich Docks or Ipswich Harbour, the marina area there? I was there, what? Waterfront, there you go, yeah. So I was around there in Ipswich, early summer, um, with my dog, Summer, and um, just wandering around, enjoying the sunshine, enjoying the boats. It felt like being at Monaco, but even though I was in Ipswich. And um, there was a really big boat right in front of me, and there was a guy on the deck, and he'd spread his plans out on the deck, and he was obviously plotting his route. And there was another very impressive sailing ship just next to his. And I stood for a while and watched what ensued, because... Four people got on the sailing ship next to this nice big one. They were, I think they were two couples. And they bought the proverbial kitchen sink with them. They bought crates of beer. They bought bottles of wine, bags of food. I mean, everything you needed for a party time. And they climbed onto the boat. And the guy in the big ship looked down. And he said, whoa, looks like you guys are in for a party. Where are you going? And their answer fascinated me because they looked at each other. They looked up the guy on the big sailing ship and they said, Oh, we're not going anywhere, sir. We're just staying in the harbour for the weekend. And I reflected on that and I thought to myself, I wonder whether they'll get to work on Monday morning and they'll say, um, you know, someone will say, what did you do over the weekend? And they'll say, oh, we went sailing. We went boating. But did they really? You see, I also wonder whether there were other people on boats there who at times would have pulled out of the slip and maybe even kind of tootled about in the harbour area there and maybe even went out to the mouth of the harbour and looked out at the deep blue sea, looked out at the waves and the spray and thought, you know, 
I think we're better off just in the harbour. We'll stay here. And they tootle back and pull into their slip and tie themselves to the dock wall again. And I wonder whether those people go to work on Monday and people say, what did you do the weekend? And they say, ah, we went sailing. But did they really? You see, then this, this, these two couples, they looked at the guy on the bigger boat and they said, so where are you going? He said, oh, I'm planning it out now. First off, we're going to the Hook of Holland. Then we're going to the south of France. and We're going to end up the summer in the south of Spain. So he was going out into the deep. He was going beyond the harbour walls. He was going to feel the spray and the splash of the sea in his face. He was going to experience beautiful sunsets and sunrises. He was going to experience new lands, new food, new culture. And when he gets back to work after the summer, huh, I can imagine people saying, what did you do? And he said, I went sailing. And he did. I mean, which of those three couples I've described actually went sailing? And this is the point of what I want to say this week. You see, I'm worried for some of us. Genuinely, I'm worried for some of us who would call ourselves Jesus followers. Because we claim to be risk it all. We claim to be really sailing when it comes to faith. But we've never been out into the deep. We've never gone beyond the harbour walls to where it's a little bit risky. Oh, sure. We have the Bible app open on the train going to work in the morning. And maybe even in the office at lunchtime. And, 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 you know, we'll come to church on Sunday, as long as there's nothing else going on. And we might even pray when life gets a little bit tough. But we're still tied up in the dock. We're still moored in the harbour, spiritually speaking. Which for a Jesus follower is crazy. It's madness. Because it's in the deep where you can really feel the power and the presence of God. It's in the deep where you can feel the thrills and the chills, the roller coaster ride of living every day with a Jesus who isn't dead but is alive. It's only in the deep where your faith gets tested, it gets sharpened, it gets matured, it gets, gets made strong. It's only in the deep where you begin to see miracles, the miracles your heart is longing for. It's in the deep where you see powerful answers to prayer. It's in the deep where you feel so close to God, so tight with God. You just can't help yourself telling everybody in the line at Tesco's or over the garden fence or at work on Monday morning. It's in the deep where the life you've always wanted actually is. It's in the deep where that gap gets filled. So if you've ever found yourself saying, is there a cure to the common life? If you've ever found yourself saying, I wonder, is there more to life than than I'm currently experiencing? Listen, that's harbour talk. If you're saying those things and thinking those things, they're the kind of things that harbour people say and harbour people think. You know what the harbour feels like, right? You know it all too well. The harbour is easy. Harbour life is simple. Harbour life is easy. It's safe. It's not risky. It's well populated. There are loads of people in the harbour. And it's fun. Bottles of beer crates of food it's just great fun in the harbor but you know that the harbor's not for you deep down you know the harbor doesn't satisfy you know that the harbor quickly feels limiting it quickly feels basic it feels elementary you know that the harbor quickly feels boring which is why you get to that place in your life where you're saying there's got to be more than this you know deep down the harbor is not for you You know that it's out there in the deep beyond the harbour walls where the real stuff happens, where the powerful stuff happens. And listen, it doesn't matter whether you would call yourself a Jesus follower or whether you're an atheist or anywhere in between that scale. 
all of us, whoever we are, wherever, we're on, wherever we are on a spiritual journey, we all want something that's real. We want something that's authentic. We want something that's got a bit of depth to it, right? And so this little series, this week and next week that I'm teaching, this series, let me tell you who it's for. It's for those of us who are kind of curious about faith. We've come because our friends invited us and we've been curious about their life and we wonder whether this Jesus thing is real and whether he can make a difference in my life. This series is for you. This little mini-series is for those of us who are fresh into faith. Maybe we haven't been baptised very long and we're new to this church and relatively new to Jesus and faith and we wonder how we get out there into the deep. How do I develop this relationship I've started with Jesus? What's my next step? This series is for you. But I think more than ever, or more than any, I think this series is for those of us who've been around the block of church and been around the block of faith for years now, maybe even decades now. Because I wonder whether for some of us, our faith feels a bit more like routine than a relationship. Does that ring true? You know, you remember the times when you felt so close to God, so tight. You've got stories about those amazing things that happened, but... They're old stories now in their distant memories. This series is for you. So how do you close that gap between the life you really want and the life you currently experience? How do you find a cure for the common life? Now, you might think this is an obvious thing for a preacher to say, but hear me out on this. The answer to that is we start by getting Jesus right. It's tough to get life right when we've got Jesus wrong. It's really tough to get every day one foot in front of the other, life right, when we've got Jesus wrong. Because you need to understand Jesus wasn't a stay in the harbour, tied to the dock kind of a person. He wasn't that kind of a saviour. So I want to spend the next few weeks getting a right view of Jesus, because then I think it'll help us to get life right and to start filling that gap between the life we desperately want and the life we're currently experiencing. See, I'm genuinely concerned that for some of us, you know, who would call ourselves Jesus followers, and we have been for for years, I'm concerned actually that we're following the wrong Jesus. Seriously, we're following the wrong Jesus. Because when you take a good hard look at Jesus, you understand that everything about him was counterculture. When you look hard at Jesus, you begin to understand that everything about him was counterintuitive, even a little upside down. In fact... When you take a good, long, hard look at Jesus, you begin to understand and hear me on this, that Jesus was even a little backward. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because we've got to get Jesus right. We've got to start following the right Jesus if we're going to get life right. So what do I mean by this idea of Jesus being a little backward? I mean, take the day, okay? Take the day that they nailed Jesus to a cross. It was a Friday. They shoved a crown of thorns on his head and they pinned him to a cross. You know what they call that day? Good Friday. Are you kidding me? Good Friday when you get nailed to a cross and a crown of thorns pinned to your head? It's like going on a terrible date, isn't it? A terrible date. And you leave the evening by saying, that was a good evening. No, it wasn't. There was nothing about that evening that was good. It's like watching your team lose 9-0. And you walk out of the stadium coming home and someone says, good match. And you go, no, nothing about that match was good. It's like finishing Christmas dinner and someone saying, oh, good Brussels sprouts. No, Brussels sprouts can never be good. Straight from the devil's armpit. They cannot be good. It's impossible. 
So how can you call that dark day in the life of Jesus, that dark Friday, how can you call it good Friday? I mean, it's so backwards. And then think about his birth. Think about the birth of Jesus. I mean, it's not what you would expect the creator of the world to announce himself, to make his entrance on the stage as a helpless, crying baby. And he wasn't a state-of-the-art birthing suite. I mean, it wasn't clean and tidy. He was born in an animal shelter, hewn into some rock on the side of a field, just to give animals some shelter in the bad weather. And when he was born, there was nowhere to lay him except an animal feed trough with bits of regurgitated food and straw and the burps of donkeys and horses. And, and he's surrounded by the smell of cow poop. I mean, that's how Jesus gets born. And then he grows up. You think about his growing up life. And he wasn't growing up in the big, famous, glitzy city. He didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He came from a little two-bit country town. It's where he spent most of his life, in some country bumpkin little town called Nazareth. In fact, somebody explained that Jesus came from Nazareth and someone else said, you're joking me. Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It's like someone saying, you know, I'm rich and famous. I was born in Needham Market. You know, you're joking. Nothing good comes out. No, I'm sorry. If you live in Needham Market, I humbly apologize. But he grows up spending most of his days pounding nails in the carpentry business with his dad. He spends most of his days building wooden framed houses. He spends most of his days carrying heavy planks of wood from one job to the next. And I just think it's ironic that Jesus would spend his life working with his hands and wood. And he would die with his hands nailed to a piece of wood. Do you see? It's so backward. I mean, think about, think about the people he chooses to follow him. Think about his disciples. Think about the bunch of lads that he pulled together to be world changers. I mean, you'd think, wouldn't you? You'd think they would be the cream of the crop. You'd think they'd be the best of the best. You'd think they would be the A students, the A star students. You'd think they would be the guys with an amazing CV who've got firsts from Cambridge with distinction. You'd think they'd be talented, good-looking lads. But no. They were ordinary blokes. They were unschooled blokes. And they were blokes who were really slow to catch on at times. And they were very hot-headed at times. They would argue amongst themselves as to who was the most important. And in fact, two of them have to get their mum involved. Two of them get their mum to petition Jesus to say, hey, Jesus, can my boy sit next to you one day? It's kind of crazy, isn't it? So backward. I mean, who would choose a crew like that to change the world? So backward. Think about the things Jesus did. I mean, you'd think, wouldn't you? You'd think that a holy man, a rabbi, would turn wine into water. Let's take the steam out of this party. Everybody's getting a little bit too raucous. Let's dial it down a bit. All this wine I'm going to turn into beautiful, fresh, healthy H2O. Not Jesus. He takes bowls of foot-washing water with corn plasters and bits of nail in them. The stuff they washed people's feet as they came into the banquet. And he turns it into wine and the best kind of Beaujolais you can imagine. So the host of the banquet would not get embarrassed. And then he, he fed 5,000 men. In fact, he also fed the women and the children. You're talking 15,000, 20,000 people. He fed with nothing more than a Dairy Lee Lunchable. Think about the things that he did. He even one day picks up a little kid and rests him on his shoulder 
And he says to everybody, all the intelligent religious people in the crowd, he says, listen, you are never going to understand me. In fact, you are never going to understand my father in heaven or this kingdom that I'm talking about unless you become like this little dude in my arms. And then one day Jesus walks into church and he sees poor people being ripped off in the name of God and his nostrils flare at the injustice of it all. So he turns over their their tables in anger turns them upside down and at the same point turns their religious worldview upside down as well. And in the night before he's crucified, he's with his crew. He's the most powerful man in the room and yet he flips the script. He gets down onto his hands and knees. He takes a a cloth from his waistband. He takes a bowl of water and like a slave, this most powerful man in the room starts washing the feet of his disciples. He even washes the feet of the guy who in a few hours' time, a guy called Judas, is going to betray him. He washes his feet. And he says, listen, if you want to be something in this world, if you want to reach the heights, then you've got to become like a slave. You've got to become a servant. So backward. So counterculture. So counterintuitive. He gave living water to people that he shouldn't have even been hanging out with. He confounded intellectual people with the simplicity of his teaching. He he touched lepers who were considered the untouchables of the day. And he gave life back to people who'd been pronounced dead by doctors. He only spent three years on planet Earth doing this kind of thing, doing this ministry. Three years. And yet 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this man and what he does in this kind of backward little place called Suffolk. I mean, so very backwards. And then one day, one day, adoring crowds are lining the streets and they're singing and they're cheering Jesus' arrival into the big city of Jerusalem. You see, these crowds, they were expecting a political revolutionary They were expecting a a hero who was going to save them from Roman tyranny and Roman oppression and the Roman occupation of their land. And so they started to sing, Hosanna, Hosanna to Jesus, which when you translate it means, please save us. Jesus, you're the one. Save us from Rome. Save us from oppression. Save us from the tyranny of the sword. Save us, Jesus. And so they wanted a prince of war. And yet they got a prince of peace. They wanted a hero who's going to ride in on the back of a white stallion, William Wallace-esque, holding a sword in his hand. But what they got was a humble king riding into Jerusalem on the back of a small, brown, borrowed donkey. So backward. So backward. So mad. And then the night he dies, he's in an olive grove in a place called Gethsemane. I think it's picturesque that he was actually in this olive grove. It's no accident that this happened there because he's under so much stress, knowing what was about to happen to him. He's under so much stress that he's literally beginning to sweat drops of blood. The blood capillaries under his skin are beginning to burst and he's sweating out blood. He's crushed about what's just about to happen. You know, the only way you get the juicy Precious oil from an olive is to crush it. And in this olive garden, Jesus is crushed and he's praying with everything that's left in him. And do you know what he's praying about? 
because he knows what's about to happen to him. And so he's praying to his father. And he's saying to his father, Father, please change the plan. I don't like what's about to happen. Please change the plan. You ever been in that place? You ever been in that place where you're worried about what tomorrow's going to bring? And you don't like it and you know it's going to be terrifying. And so you look up to heaven. Whether you would call yourself a Jesus follower or not, you're going to just see if this God thing works. God, please change the plan. If you've ever prayed a prayer like that, I want you to know you are in great company. Because that night in that olive garden, Jesus prayed that very same prayer as a crushed man. But then it dawned on him. This wasn't about him. This was about his father. So he says, Father, I'm, I get it. This isn't about me and what goes on in my life. This is about you and what you want to happen on planet Earth. So whatever it takes, your will be done, not mine. Your will. And he changes his prayer. And do you know who he starts praying for? This crushed man in this garden the night before he's going to get crucified. You know who he prays for? He prays for you. He prays for us. He prays for me. He's just about to go through so much pain and agony and he starts praying for other people. He's about to be betrayed by his close friends. He's about to be flogged with a cat of nine tails. He's about to be stripped naked. The saviour of the world going through the humility of standing naked in front of the world. He's about to be nailed to a cross and he knows that's about to happen, but he's got you on his mind. I'm so unselfishly upside down. So backward. It kind of makes me think that when I'm struggling, when I'm in the midst of my pain, when I'm hurting, I ought to shift the focus off of me and focus onto others. Maybe, maybe in doing that, I might ease my own pain. So they come to arrest Jesus that night in this olive grove, this crushed man. And Judas one of the followers of Jesus. Been following Jesus for three years. He was Jesus' friend. When they come to arrest, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Judas leans in and kisses Jesus on the cheek as if to say to the soldiers, this is the guy you want. Now where's my bribe money? And they take Jesus away and they put him in front of Pilate, the Roman governor. But Pilate's a weak man. He doesn't want to upset the political apple cart. So he washes his hands of him. He sends him on to King Herod. And Herod's heard about Jesus and the amazing tricks Jesus does. He's the Darren Brown of the day. Come on, Jesus, do some juggling, do some miracles, entertain my court. And Jesus would have none of it. So Herod sends him back to Pilate. These men do not know what to do with Jesus. And so they decide to have this innocent man brutally beaten. I mean, so backward, so backward. And so Pilate stands on the balcony of his palace with Jesus on his right and with a man called Barabbas on his left, a common criminal. And he says to the crowd, who do you want me to release? What about Barabbas, this guy who's currently in prison because he's been terrorizing your kids, he's been stealing from your homes, he's been terrorizing our neighborhoods. Do you want me to release him or this totally innocent man called Jesus who's got some wacky ideas about God? Who do you want to be to be released? And the crowd got it so backward, they started chanting the name of Barabbas. So they let a convicted criminal free and Pilate washes his hands of the lot of it. And so they lead Jesus away. Pilate has Jesus stripped naked. Think of the indignity of that. 
And then they flogged Jesus with a cat of nine tails, 39 times. A whip with nine pieces of leather and little bits of bone and stone and metal in each of the pieces of leather. 39 times they whipped that man's back. Most people died from being whipped 39 times with a cat of nine tails because the whole of your back would be torn off and you could see people's internal organs. Most people died. You think following Jesus is the wet thing to do? There's nothing wet about Jesus. We have an eyewitness account to what happened that day. A tax collector called Matthew writes about it and we still have his writings. Matthew says this, he says, some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown. They put it on his head and placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. They knelt before him in mockery and they taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him. They grabbed the stick and they struck him on the head with it. And then they got bored. And when they finally got tired of mocking him, they took off the robe. This guy's back had been ripped off and they put a robe and it would have stuck to the blood on his back and then they take that robe off. And they put Jesus' own clothes back on him. And they led him away to be crucified. So backward. They gave him this heavy cross to carry on his raw and bleeding shoulders all the way up a hill. And that same adoring crowd were lining the streets again. But this time they weren't adoring Jesus. They were mocking him. They were spitting on him and they were kicking him and they were punching him. All the way up to the top of this hill called Golgotha, where they crucified Jesus between two common criminals hastily fashioned a mocking sign and they nailed it above Jesus's cross. Hail, King of the Jews. They were trying to be sarcastic, but they got it so backward because this was not the King of the Jews on that cross. This was the King of all kings. And they crucified him. And they took those feet, those feet that had walked for miles and miles and miles to bring help and healing to broken people. They took those feet and they pinned them to a cross. They bent his knees at a 45 degree angle and pinned his feet to the cross so that he couldn't push up and catch a breath. Most people who died being crucified didn't die of the nails. They died because they suffocated. They couldn't catch their breath anymore. Jesus put on a demonstration of love for you on that cross that should take your breath away. Why? Because it took his breath away. Think about it. Think about it. The creator who breathed life into the nostrils of mankind was running out of breath himself. So backward. So backward. And so we come to his last words. It's always good to listen to somebody's last words, right? He had some last words for the soldiers. And again, we have an eyewitness who wrote what Jesus said to the soldiers as he hung on that cross. It was a doctor called Luke. Very used to writing detailed accounts. And he writes this detailed account of the death of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 23, this is what Jesus says to the soldiers who were beating him and mocking him and punching him and spitting on him and killing him. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. What? No, Jesus, don't be daft. 
Call down legions of angels with machine guns. Are you crazy? They're hitting you and spitting on you and mocking you and stripping you naked. They're killing you. Father, forgive them. No, Jesus, they're hurting you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So backward. And then there's this one criminal who was on the cross next to Jesus. And it suddenly dawns to this criminal. This guy really is the real deal. He is who he said he is. He's the Messiah sent from God. He's the savior of the world. And so he turns to Jesus and he says, would you forgive me, Jesus? Would you save me? Look what Jesus says, final words to the criminal on the cross. Jesus replies, don't worry, I will. I'll forgive you. I will save you. And today, my friend, today, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus is saying to this criminal, your life may not have been well lived, that's for sure. But in this moment, your faith and your humility to ask for forgiveness mixed with the grace of my Father is going to be one fantastic day in heaven for you today. So backward. Listen, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you've done in your life. I have no clue about what you believe about this man, Jesus. But no matter what you've done in your life, this This is the radical, unexpected, upside down, amazing grace of God for you. You are never going to get your life right if you keep getting Jesus wrong. Jesus wasn't the stay in the harbor, stay safe kind of a guy. You'll find him in the depths. So Jesus hangs on this cross with your name in his mind, with you on his mind. And finally comes the time where he screams out. The literal translated word here is the word scream. You don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. But here, Jesus screams out from the cross. Mark records it. At three o'clock, Jesus called out in a loud voice. Jesus screamed out, Eloi, Eloi, Lamai, Samachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I think this is the most painful moment of all. Jesus was used to being so close with his father. But at this moment, Jesus is on his shoulders carrying all of my guilt and my shame and my wrongdoing and my sin. And he's carrying all of yours as well. He's carrying all the guilt and shame of everybody living in Suffolk. He's carrying the guilt and the shame and the sin of anyone who's ever lived on planet Earth and will ever live on planet Earth. It's all on his shoulders. God can't look at him anymore. He's separated from his father and his heart is breaking. And so he cries out, God, why have you ever abandoned me now? And in that moment, do you see, Jesus is giving you permission to cry out to God when it doesn't feel like he's there. You know, for so many people, when life goes wrong and they end up in a ditch, they run away from God. They blame God. I've got nothing to do with God and church and his people. Jesus says, no, copy me. I'm going to lean into my father. Oh, yeah, I'm going to pray a few angry prayers. and I'm going to ask where he is in all of this, but I'm not running. I'm leaning in. Maybe you need to do the same. And so finally, Jesus pushes up one last time. And with his final breath, he says, it is finished. What, Jesus? You failed? You're done? You give up? 
They got the better of you, Jesus. You're done now. The actual word here is translated, tetelestai is the actual word. And it's, it's a banking term. It means paid in full. I owe you money. And when I give you that money back, you send me back the invoice and you just write paid in full. The debt's wiped out. And Jesus on that cross in that moment is wiping out the debt of sin that all of us owed. It's been paid in full. Listen to me. Why is Good Friday so good? Because it was so backward. That's why. Good Friday. How can one describe such a day? The wrongdoing of all humanity putting to an end an innocent man, the Son of God. This is the story of Jesus' death by way of a cross, all in one moment bringing death to the bright light of our future. He never stopped loving us, and yet this is the incredible part of it. Our sin stopped his heart. Our sin drove the nails firmly in the hands of God. All along, these were the plans. We told ourselves that we were in control, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. The brutal beating, the inhuman flogging, the naked humiliation. Heaven watched and saw it all. Our rebellion, our guilt, our shame, erasing the very notion of reconciling us with God, our sin and our debt, overcoming Jesus. Here is our King, obliterated. The enemy laughing, his plans unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of freedom rising. Now God's people are utterly broken. Behold the chains of mortality. Yes, this is what is true. We had heard the stories of old. The lost are found, the blind can see, the weak are made strong. But now we are witnesses to this reality. God is dead. We'd almost believed there is a way of redemption. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a peace beyond understanding. Now we know better. For us, we can say that God is encapsulated in this one realization. The single greatest sacrifice in human history is finished. How clearly we can see it. So what's so good about Good Friday? just one thing, that the blood of Jesus can reverse the curse of sin and raise the dead to life. How clearly we can see it is finished. The single greatest sacrifice in human history encapsulated in this one realization. We can say that God is for us. Now we know better. There is a peace beyond understanding. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a way of redemption. We had almost believed God is dead, but now we are witnesses to this reality. 
The weak are made strong, the blind can see, the lost are found. We had heard the stories of old, yes, this is what is true. The chains of mortality utterly broken, behold freedom rising. Now God's people are unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of the enemy laughing, his plans obliterated. Here is our King, Jesus, overcoming our sin and our debt, reconciling us with God, erasing the very notion of our rebellion, our guilt, our shame. Heaven watched and saw it all, the naked humiliation, the inhuman flogging, the brutal beating, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. We told ourselves that we were in control all along, these were the plans firmly in the hands of God. Our sin drove the nails, our sin stopped his heart, and yet this is the incredible part of it. He never stopped loving us. The bright light of our future all in one moment, bringing death to death by way of a cross. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, an innocent man putting to an end the wrongdoing of all humanity. How can one describe such a day? Good Friday. That's all for this week. Thanks once again for joining us. We'd love to keep the conversation going, so please check us out on social media at Forge Church and check out our website, forgechurch.com, where you can give financially, watch new content and see any details of events we have going on here at The Forge. See you next week.